Peter said to the people that they must listen to everything he tells you to do. And Lord God, we pray that you would open our ears this morning truly to hear you so that we may do what you tell us to. We ask it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, Sue. Um, I went for a walk uh, some while ago, 2007, uh, June, it was. I went with a couple of friends. It wasn't one of those kind of, you know, where, where you go back to a, uh, a car. It was from one point to another, so we needed a taxi. And a uh, taxi picked us up and delivered us about 5.30 in the morning to our starting place because it was a long walk we had in front of us. It was uh, behind Jerusalem in the hills of Judea where they slope down towards the Dead Sea. And I got to go on the walk, basically, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's uh, an astonishing walk. It's up there with the greatest walks of my life. We saw on the walk the conies that jump around the crags, according to the psalmist. We heard the ravens that fed Elijah. And as we got out of the car, about mm, 30 meters away, uh, we were on kind of scrubby, sandy ground. Uh, this sandy-colored animal became clear. It was a deer, a gazelle, I suppose. And as we closed the doors of the car, made some noise, it bounced off. And I don't know if you've ever seen a gazelle bouncing, but they do. They don't jump like a dog would go. They go boing, 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 boing. If we hadn't already known it, we would have known from the deer that we were in the age of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 6 tells us that when the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like a deer. And it's not accidental, therefore, that when Peter and John at the temple gate called Beautiful uh, see the man and he is healed of his lameness, it's not accidental that Luke records him going into the temple, walking and jumping and praising God. Because Luke wants us to know this is the lame leaping like a deer because these are the days of the Messiah. If you've closed your Bibles, please open them again to page uh, 1094 and 5. There are three parts to the story, though I'm not actually going to cover them in that kind of bang, bang, bang way. Uh, There is the story of the healing of the man at the gate. Then there is the story of of, uh, what God has done in Jesus. It's the story of Jesus through to verse 16. And then from 17, it gets the, and now this is what you have to do about it treatment. There are two things 
not to do with this story. And you may have been in circles where both of these have been done. The first of these is to say, well, these are the days of the Messiah. There is a promise here about the restoration of all things. And therefore, because this one man is healed, all healing must happen. I have a friend whose parents were pushed out of the church that they then belonged to because the leadership of the church could not cope with the fact that having prayed for my friend's sister to be healed from a very difficult and chronic and genetic condition and her not being healed, that somehow they couldn't cope with that. They said it was the fault of my friend's parents. And so they kind of just pushed them out of the fellowship. It was a fair time ago, and it's not anywhere local, you'll be glad to know. But there are churches who cannot live with the experience of the unhealed among them, because everything must be healed and now. The other thing not to do with it is to say, well, really, all this healing does, those first few verses, they're like a flag waving. Really, the point is the sermon and uh, the preaching of forgiveness and forgiveness, the preaching of forgiveness is the main point, always the main point. You are freed in order to go and preach forgiveness so that other people can be freed to go and preach forgiveness. Um, the healing is kind of irrelevant. Neither of those seems to me to be the case. If you pay attention to verse 26. The story ends at verse 26. We can assume that Luke, excuse me, recording it, <coughs> knew that there was a point to be reached And with verse 26, he reaches the point. When God raised up his servant, that's Jesus, he sent him first to you, that's the Jews, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. What is this story about? Well, it is not about uh, you turning in repentance, the people I'm talking to, whether I'm Peter then or, or now. And then you get a blessing as a second thing. Isn't that wonderful? First you repent, and then all kinds of good things happen as a blessing. Because verse 26 tells us that the blessing is living in the repentance. What is the blessing? He sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. It is as you turn to God from wicked ways... In repentance, that is the blessing. It is to live with God enthroned in your life as he is already in the heavens. And the change that's looked for is simply to change towards that. What is all this... Jewishness about. There is a hint to say, uh, to, uh, he sent him first to you. There is a hint of something else coming. This is a very, very Jewish sermon. At the beginning of the sermon, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Samuel gets a look in there towards the end. So does Moses. It is uh, a God of faithfulness that's being described. Look, listen, folks, you have just seen this healing happen. Now, in the world, even of Jerusalem in those days, even though this was outside the very temple 
of Jewishness. When that would have happened, they would have said, oh, this is a wonder worker. Because there were all kinds of currents sweeping through Jerusalem, just like through everywhere else in the ancient Near East. And Peter says, no, it isn't a wonder worker. That's not us. It is by the name of Jesus and through faith in his name that this has happened. And this Jesus is the one who has been promised all the way through, if you look at the prophets. Going back even to Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is the one who uh, was promised as the one you're supposed to follow in the way you followed Moses. That's what Deuteronomy said. This God that you worship in this temple is so completely faithful that what he has done all the way through has been building up to this. This is now a different age. There was a time before Abraham when there were no promises. There was a time from Abraham when there was a promise. But we know from reading it ourselves, uh, as they did, that the promise led only to disaster and exile and awfulness. But now we are living in the fulfillment of the promise. If then, these Jewish people, in the today of Peter, heard him say, this is that promise, they would have known there is no other way. There is no other God you can go to than the God of your fathers. This is not a different thing. I'm not calling you to a different uh, God. I'm not calling you to a different deity, to any different philosophy. I am simply being faithful to the God that you know by being here in this place and coming at the hour of evening sacrifice, because that's when it was. And that means we have to think today, what what does this mean? Because we are not Jewish. If it meant for them that there is no other God, I suggest it means pretty much the same for us, that there is no other solution to what we look for. What has the exercise of who cares told us? That there is a huge ache in the heart of our community around injustice and loneliness and grief, heartaches, uh, uh, operating at enormous depth, conflict. There is no other solution to those than this solution. And it's not a kind of glib, whatever the question is, the answer is Jesus. But simply because if we look at what happened in the story of the Jews, that from ancient time they had all these promises, they had the best that it is possible to have. They had the very flower of God's outpouring of himself. And yet, if they did with it what they did with it, then it tells us that the heart of mankind, men and women and boys and girls, is implacably inclined towards putting ourselves first and ignoring God. Something bigger than the temple of the Jews is needed. And that something bigger, Peter says, just happened among you. And now what I want from you, he says, is the turning of the heart through forgiveness to live with God. Because that's the ancient promise. I will live with you, you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. 
That's the promise that runs through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Samuel and Moses. And they had walked away from that. It was not God that had walked away from that. So the blessing now for them is in verse 26, if he turns each of them from their wicked ways back so that he can live with them and they can live with him, it is the fulfillment of the most ancient, deepest promise to live with God. And if proof were needed of how opposed the heart of humankind is to what Peter has to say. Turn up next week and listen to how the resurrection of the dead is the purest of bad news. If it weren't so tragic, it would be hilarious. So, that's the shape. What's the detail? Well, go to verse 19, if you would. Because this blessing, bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways, has three parts to it. Firstly, in verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Apparently, in the ink of those days, there was no acid. So if you had a parchment, uh, not a parchment, but just a, a paper of papyrus, um, all you needed to do if you made a mistake was simply take a, a damp cloth and wipe it away because the ink would not have kind of burned its way as it would today into the, into the paper. You just took a cloth and wiped it out and that's, the, that's what's going on. Your sins are just wiped out. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins will be wiped out. Verse 19. Then, skip on ahead. If that's the erasing of sin, then in verse 20... Uh, we learn of the establishing of hope that he may send that God may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. There is a hope. I guess we all have an awareness of what it is like to live without God. It may be a, a stage for us that we've passed through. It may be those we'd care about. It always seems to me that the most tragic is to live without hope, to have no sense of where anything in life is going, to to know that today doesn't matter because tomorrow won't matter and the days after won't matter because you're just going towards a black void. Peter promises the erasing of sin and the establishing of hope. But then in the middle, in verse 19, there's a fascinating phrase. So that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ. If you say that this this is Peter, Peter knows what happens in sermons, and he doesn't write a new one for each occasion, because he's got other things to do in the week then it's not entirely different, probably, from the one you get in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, you get the same appeal to repentance. In chapter 2, you get the same establishing of a hope beyond. And in chapter 2, the equivalent to the times of refreshing is that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So just logic 
suggests that this odd phrase, which only comes once in the entire New Testament, represents the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? I haven't a clue. Except to say that it is the age of the Messiah. It is the age of his Spirit. Whatever it means, it's different from the way it used to be. And for me to live as though things are the way they used to be is a blasphemy. I must not. Neither should they. And neither should you. When sin is erased and hope is established, to live as though those things are not true is to deny the work of the Spirit. And if, in the providence of God's Spirit, He chooses to bring good things, refreshing things for the Spirit, healing, we'll look at others in a moment as we finish, then it's not for us to say, no, he mustn't. So, there are those of us at any given moment, and all of us at some time, who want to know the question, having read chapter 3 of Acts, does this mean I get healed? Well, no, it doesn't. Not if you're looking for a stick with which you can beat God and say to him, you said chapter 3. Because that is pagan religion. Neither does it mean, neither can it mean, that, well, doesn't seem to happen, so nobody really gets healed. That's just cynicism. But it means that there is some restoration ahead of the time when, according to verse 21, God restores everything. There is some healing. And of course, that is much wider than physical healing, though it includes it. It must be wider if this is the restoring of all things. Because it's any restoration that causes the wonder and amazement of that crowd on the day of prayer with Peter and John. Some of you were at the Alpha Supper a couple of weeks ago and listened to the extraordinary testimony of Daryl Tunningley. He was not healed, but he was turned. And there was wonder and amazement at the turning around of an armed robber serving multiple prison sentences who woke up one day having prayed a prayer with his heart, as he said, exploding out of his chest so that someone said to him, what's got into you? I can bear witness that in the last few months, uh, it's a story to tell perhaps on another occasion, my heart has had reason to leap like a deer as God has worked in me. This is the age in which the impossible has already happened, a man has risen from the dead. And that means the improbable becomes very possible. There may be healing. There may be forgiveness and love and reconciliation where there is conflict. Don't give in to the cynicism that says that can't happen or to the paganism that says it has to happen and now. Look at that word in verse 17. It's just the most wonderful word that begins verse 17. Now. Now. And here. And today. And for you. And me. Turn from your wicked ways. 
and live with Jesus Christ enthroned. That is the blessing, to live on earth as things are in heaven. Live that way before he comes back to earth again. And so for some, the now of verse 17 will mean repent. You have faffed about with church. You've got all kinds of good reasons, probably, social ones. Maybe, maybe we're nice people, I don't know. But uh, there are different reasons for coming to church. But, but God is saying to you, some of you now, repent. Repent and turn to God. Take God seriously in ways you did not know were possible. There are others who have been hopeless because perhaps they long ago repented, but they've lost hope along the way and they've forgotten the story of the gospel that Jesus Christ will return with power and great glory to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. There are those who discount the life of God by his spirit. Enter into it in new ways. And just what a, what a way of putting it. Times of refreshing. How could you not just want to stand under the shower, the waterfall of whatever that means for you? And I don't know what it means for you, but you can talk to us. Three things there. Be surprising if one of them wasn't something that each of us needed to pay attention to. We have time at the rail, at communion. There will be time afterwards in prayer ministry. But somewhere there, there's probably something for you. Repent. Stand under the waterfall of refreshing. And go back to hope. He sent him first to bless you the Jews, but now he has sent him to bless us, the Gentiles, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a song that draws us to the Lamb of God and to the sacrifice made once for each one of us. In the light of that cross, perhaps in the shadow of that cross, look to your own heart. Is there repenting to do? Is there a refreshing of which you stand in need? Have you abandoned hope? Lord Jesus Christ, let your kingdom come in each heart on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.